Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our hearts and minds and think through them. Take our wills and set them on fire for love of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. We're in a sermon series considering good things offered by a good God who knows our needs. I wonder for you what comes to mind when you think about the good things that you need for a good life. Maybe for some of you, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the physiological needs, the, the needs of security and relationships, probably not what first springs to your mind. I'll confess, running on very little sleep, an hour of sleep is what I need today for a good life. <laughs> a recent Harvard study suggested another way to think about it. They gave six metrics for a good life Happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, social relationships, and financial and material stability. I think those are pretty helpful descriptors and categories, and indeed there are lots of helpful frameworks out there that describe true things in our world, or things that might be true about our life, but it's helpful when we consider any framework to think about these three things. First, consider God's word on the subject. Does it give us a different paradigm? Second, remember God's common grace to all people, including those who are not Christians, that God may speak things that are true about the world that we observe, that Christians can use to understand our world, even if it is an aid to scripture and not a replacement for it. And thirdly, Remember that when scripture is more descriptive than prescriptive, telling us what the world is like as opposed to telling us exactly what to do, that's where we're to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and God's will for how we're to understand his truth in our time. For this sermon series in First and Second Timothy, God does give us in his word a different paradigm of the good things that we need for a good life. We've considered a good conscience, the good confession about the good man, Jesus Christ. We've considered the good fight of faith and a good life lived in service to the world and in witness to the world. Today, we'll consider the good deposit. We'll talk about what is it, who has guarded it, and how do we guard it. You're likely familiar with the 90s Steven Spielberg movie, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I'll tell you that I think once a movie is 20 years old, then I don't need to announce that it is a spoiler alert, especially when the movie reveals the spoiler in the first opening scenes. Here's how the movie starts. An elderly man stumbling through the American cemetery in Normandy. He finds, after much searching, one grave marker with a cross. It reads, Captain John Miller, and he breaks down sobbing. There's your spoiler. The elderly man, played as a younger man by Matt Damon, is Private Ryan, the one surviving son whose three brothers were killed in combat. The War Department decided that a mission was needed to save him, led by Captain John Miller. So after surviving the D-Day invasion and combat and Normandy, they go on this mission in France to find Private Ryan. 
And now at the end of the movie, we have Private Ryan, an old man, reflecting back on what was given to him, the deposit given to him, and reflecting on what he did with what was given to him with his life. Our reading today from 2 Timothy shares some similarity in context. We have an old man, Paul, writing from prison, writing to a young protege, Timothy, reflecting back on the good deposit given to him and what Paul did with that good deposit in his life. This is a real letter. Timothy was, I'd like to say a young man. He was about my age. You can decide whether that descriptor is accurate. Timothy likely heard the gospel from Paul on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And several years later, he accompanied Timothy on further missionary journeys. See, Paul recruited him. Paul recruited this young Timothy to accompany him. Now, why why did he do that? Because Paul was Jewish, and Paul had a mission to the Greek Gentiles. The problem was the Greeks could see this Jewish man, Paul, coming from a mile away. And Paul lacked some credibility. He needed somebody with the cultural and ethnic credibility to help give him a foothold for proclaiming the gospel. And so Timothy was that man. Timothy's mom was Jewish, his dad was Greek. He had felt the pain of ethnic exclusion during his life, but now God used his ethnicity as part of his calling on his life. He would be a bridge builder. He would help Paul in this ministry to the Gentiles. And now Paul, reflecting back on this special relationship that he shared with Timothy, writes to him from, Goss, from, the, from the prison in which he would likely die. And moved by emotion and urgency, he reflects back on the good deposit given to him, which he passed on to Timothy. So first question, what is the good deposit? Simply put, it is the essentials of our faith. It is the gospel. Paul gives us the gospel in a couple of forms in our passage. First, he gives it to us in shorthand. Look down at verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, scholars, literary scholars will tell you this, this is just a standard greeting that Paul uses in all his letters. By that, we can know that Paul wrote it. It's much more than a greeting. This is the gospel in shorthand. Grace, getting the promise of life we don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what our sins deserve. Peace, reconciliation with God and man. This is the gospel in short form. It's certainly more than that, but it's not less. If you look down at the very lengthy sentence which begins in verse 8 and extends all the way through verse 12, which was wonderfully read, I might add, with the 16 commas, that's the gospel in slightly longer form. That's the good deposit. It talks about grace and it talks about gift. It can be said that the whole Bible is about this promise of life. From the tree of life in Genesis to the visions we have in Revelation of the waters of life and the tree of life, Scripture tells the story of the promise of life, the promise 
of grace. And the promise of life is good news for dying sinners. The promise of mercy is good news for us. It's good news because Jesus doesn't forgive sin. Jesus forgives sinners. That's good news for us. It's the grace that God gives to us, that what he forgives isn't some abstract thing out there in the world. Yes, God has the power to make right sin that we see on broad levels throughout our world, but he has the power to forgive the sin in you. And it's not because of what you've done. It's not because you've earned it. It's because God loves you. It's because God is like a good father or mother who gives good gifts to his children. And the gospel is that gift to us. Like any gift, you must receive it. And as our passage tells us, this gift of God is indeed God's very Holy Spirit, which will be in you. Look down at verse 6. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. See, God is the guarantor of the deposit. He is the one who is ensuring us that the down payment, the foretaste, the deposit that he's given us, he will make good on. There is a full payment coming. Another word in Greek for a similar term to deposit is erebon, the word used to describe the foretaste of the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a deposit of God's promise to us. A down payment of this gift. Look down at this longer form of the gospel beginning in 8 and carrying on through 12. It's the gift that God saved us for his purposes in verse 9. It's that he gave us life because of Jesus. It's that he revealed and showed us life in Jesus, that he abolished death, that he brought life, that he brings light. Christ's sacrifice to make that deposit, not some abstract gift, but a deposit in your bank account, undeserved. When each of our children were born, my Aunt Peg sent a simple card and a check, the first deposit to be placed in a bank account in each of our children's names. They hadn't earned it. In fact, when we received them about a week into their life, I would say they'd probably, if anything, done nothing to deserve it. <laughs> Sorry, you're getting unnecessary comments from a sleep-deprived parent. In our passage, Paul is reminded that this deposit comes by grace. He's reminded of those who guarded this deposit for him. And he reminds the ways in which he guarded the deposit, along with others, for Timothy. The good deposit was guarded and passed on to Paul. It was guarded and passed on to Timothy. It has been guarded and passed on to you. So our second question, who has guarded the good deposit? Look at our passage uh, in verse 3, as Paul begins, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly. I thank God whom I serve. Paul was an apostle. The word apostle comes from the Greek verb for being sent. 
The one who guarded the faith for Paul was the one who gives the deposit. Jesus Christ was one who guarded what was given to Paul. He gave it to him directly. But Paul also recognizes that his ancestors played a role. That in the history of the family of faith of God's people, he recognizes that there was a deposit given to his ancestors which he has received. How about for Timothy? In verse 5, it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, for many, their upbringing, their parents, grandparents, others who are caregivers, are likely the most formative influences on their life and on their faith. But we don't inherit our faith unless we claim it as their own. Anyone who has had to go through the painful process of uh, a loved one dying and the process of uh, estate planning through execution, execution is a strangely morbid term for a legal process that has to happen in order for an inheritance to be executed on and claimed. But in some ways it reminds us that our faith just isn't inherited. Timothy was not a follower of Jesus because of Eunice, because of Lois. They guarded the deposit, yes, but Timothy had to come into a faith of his own. Now, I want to think about this question, who guarded the good deposit for you? Who was it in your life who served as a spiritual mentor? Who passed on the deposit, the faith of the gospel to you? I would guess that there's many of us who, like Timothy, if asked the question, was it a praying mother or a praying grandmother, would raise their hands. In fact, some of you are praying mothers and praying grandmothers in here right now. Thank you. We thank God for you. Certainly praying fathers and grandfathers as well. Others, it may be spiritual mentors outside of your immediate family. For me, it includes Millie Stedman, a woman in her late 50s who was not a natural fit to lead our small and awkward middle school youth group at a tiny Baptist church in Maine, but faithfully showed up every Sunday and had a fascination with horses and invited us to go horseback riding on her farm. There are times in scripture where it says of Jesus that there was nothing worldly about him that would have attracted him, us to him or people to him. There was nothing about Millie that would have made sense for a middle schooler to be attracted to her showing up in my life. But she did and she was faithful. And every time I return home, I get to see Millie, who's now uh, in her late 70s, and I thank her. Who's your Millie? Who's your mother? Who's your Lois, your Eunice? And secondly, for whom are you a Lois, a Eunice, a Paul, a Timothy? Who are you guarding the faith for? Who are your children, whether biological, adopted, stepchildren, spiritual children? Who are you guarding the deposit for? Because we must guard it. 
We guard it for ourselves, but we also guard it for those to whom it would be passed on to. Paul says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Well, apostle is a term that scripture reserves for a set number of individuals who lived at a certain time. The roles of teacher and herald, one who would proclaim the gospel, those still apply to God's people, to us. Who are you passing it on to? Our third question, how do we guard the good deposit? What is our role in this? Look down beginning in verse six, and the verbs give us a clue to what it is that Paul desires for Timothy and also for us. Let's start actually with the negatives, the challenges. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Verse eight. We might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. We might be tempted to be ashamed of the name of Jesus. We might be tempted to ascribe good things in our lives to powers or forces, or even divine providence, and avoid giving credit where credit is due to our Savior and our provider. We might be ashamed of other Christians. We're not going to take a straw poll of whether you've been ashamed by another Christian over the course of the last year for obvious reasons. But I bet that's a reaction that you've had over this last year. Secondly, look further in verse 8. But share in the suffering for the gospel of the power of God. Following Jesus may lead to strained relationships, lost opportunities, possible conflict, even persecution at greater levels. But even in the midst of the temptation to be ashamed, the temptation to avoid suffering, to turn from it, we are reminded in verse 7, before these command comes, that God gives us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. And we are positively, Paul says, to fan into flame the gift of God. Furthermore, if you look down in verse 13, I love this illustration, probably because of my architectural background, we're to follow the pattern of those who came before us, to follow the example, to follow the blueprint. Now, one of my first jobs was working for my dad's surveying company, back when blueprints were actually blue. And it was like a negative image and I can tell you that the smell of the blueprint room is one of the very few scents that I can conjure up like that in my mind. And it's a mix of nostalgia and nausea. <laughs> but with it comes the reminder that in order to understand for a surveyor, for an architect, the lay of the land, the lay of the building, how something should look, how it should be built, you need a pattern, you need a plan. When we're faced with the, the temptations, the hardness of life, the suffering, feeling ashamed, the pattern of those who came before us is our encouragement. Do what they did. Put your faith into practice. We've got to use it in order to not lose it. So, so what does Paul commend? Sound words in verse 13. A simple faith and great love. I want you to think back to those who passed on the faith to you, your Eunice and Lois and Paul. What did they do? 
They probably practiced sound words. In fact, I'm sure that at some point they shared in words the story of the gospel with you, the story that helps make sense of the world for you and for others. They gave you a reason for the hope that is within the gospel and is now within you. They practiced a simple faith, understanding that some complex things can only be explained by God. It's likely that out of their love for you, they didn't get caught up arguing complexities with you, but tried to pass on that simple faith out of great love, a love that led to belief in your life and probably in the lives of others. It was important that they didn't just believe the right things, that they transmitted like a beam of information to your mind, but that they did the right things. They loved with the love of Christ so that you didn't just understand the gospel here, but you felt it here. That the way that I, I love to pray as I open a sermon uh, is take the words of my mouth and speak through them, take the meditations of our hearts and minds and think through them, take our wills and set them on fire for love of Jesus. I bet that whoever was your Lois and Timothy or Eunice, they set that to fire. They helped you fan into flame a real faith. Back to Private Ryan. So Captain Miller dies. Spoiler alert. Sorry to those who are joining us online. You didn't even have a chance to catch up. And now the movie tells the story of the mission of Captain Miller and his crew saving Private Ryan. Right before Captain Miller dies, played by Tom Hanks in one of the most stunning scenes really of the last 30 years of film, face to face with Matt Damon, Private Ryan, in his dying breath he says to him, earn this. He grabs him, you better earn this. And then he dies. In the film, it flashes back to the grave with the old man, Private Ryan. He's saying, have I done it? Am I a good man? He's asking the same question. Have I guarded what was given to me? But here's the problem. Here's where the analogy ends. This is not the gospel. The bleeding, dying Jesus who came on a rescue mission for you does not grab you by the wrists and look into your eyes and say, you better earn this. If that's our mentality, we'll spend our lives living in insecurity and in fear and instead, Jesus grabs us and he looks us in the eyes and he says, I have earned this. Let me help you guard it. The deposit of the gospel is simply that you are loved. It's not a list of good advice of things that you must do. 
Yes, Paul encourages Timothy that there are things that he can do to guard his faith, but that is primarily not what the gospel is. It is good news about what God has done for you, and so more important than your role in guarding your faith is God's role. More importantly than what you believe or what you do is whose you are. Look down at verse 12. This uh, is a sentence which, which I think shows up in one of the hymns that we sing this morning. I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard it until that day what has been entrusted to me. Who will guard it? The one in whom we've believed, Jesus Christ our Lord. So first, trust that Jesus is able to and he wants to help you guard your faith. Now, secondly, he goes on in verse 13 and encourages the following of the pattern. He says, do these things that I've done, these things that I'm encouraging you to do. And then he closes by reasserting in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. First, Jesus can guard it. Second, you've got a role to do. Third, be reminded that God through the Holy Spirit is within you. There's a saying which I remember hearing fairly early on in life, and it is a bit hallmarky, I'll admit, but I still like it. It's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I think if I were to amend it, or if Paul were to amend it, he might say, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God, for God, and don't forget to expect great things for God. There's a reason that he says it depends on God twice and only on you once. Think back to that Harvard study, the six categories of a good life. They're all good things. Happiness, satisfaction, stability, relationships. But in the summary of that Harvard study, I read this line, which was indicting. It says, each of these is nearly universally desired and each constitutes an end in and of itself. In other words, if you focus on one of those things that Harvard study says makes up a good life, it can end up an ultimate, an idol, a goal that you focus all of your life on, and you end up falling short. Because the key to the study is that it says that all six of those categories matter. And for us as Christians, it's the reminder to not focus on an individual metric of our life. Our living a good life does not depend on that one single extra precious good hour of sleep. Praise the Lord. It depends on what God has done and what he has given us. And what he's given us is the good gift of the good deposit of the gospel. There's a blessing that uh, I'll often pray if uh, someone comes forward to uh, receive communion and would receive a blessing, often young children. It's, it's from uh, the priestly blessing that God gives to the priest Aaron, and it begins, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Now that word keep, that verb in Hebrew, it's, it's also translated guard. And so my prayer for us as we close this morning, may the Lord bless you and guard you. Amen.